Hello congregation, it's Pastor Jake uh, coming to you again uh, from my office here at the Parsonage. i praying that God is continuing to just work in your lives, continuing to keep you healthy and safe. The Lord has really been blessing a lot of ways, and it's been really fun getting a chance to to get to know you over the phone. I've been trying to, to reach out to each one of you. Um, it's right now a time of unprecedented fear and worry. It's been brought about mostly, feels like, by a lot of media coverage and attention. People have been resorting to hoarding toilet paper, of all things, and I'm here to tell you that our God remains in control. As I speak, there are currently swarms of locusts in Africa that are of biblical proportions. There is warming of global temperatures, and there is currently a virus that is sweeping the globe. The talk of the world right now is, is this God's judgment on us, or is God in control at all? What I have found the most interesting is that with the locusts, the swarms are only the worst in 70 years. With the warming temperatures, they're only reaching 100-year recorded highs, meaning 100 years ago, before human pollution and smog had a chance to really become affecting the world on a global scale, these temperatures were recorded, and with the current virus, and has had a death toll that is relatively low when compared with other virus attacks through the ages, like the Black Death, which claimed over 200 million lives, or HIV and AIDS, that has claimed over 36 million lives. Even the flu pandemic in 1918 claimed up to 50 million lives. All of that to say, what we are facing today isn't new. What we are facing today is not the worst, and what we are facing today is still under God's control. When I think of things out of control, I think of sin as it runs rampant through each one of us. I think of Adam and Eve's choices in the garden and how God stepped in to bring us back into relationship with Him. When I think of things that are out of control, I think back to how God stepped into a flooded world to remind us that the sin that we struggle with isn't only found in really sinful people, but it's also found in the righteous. I think of the events at the Tower of Babel where God stepped in again to redirect the people who were bent on making a structure whose sole purpose it was to worship mankind in his supposed greatness. Have you noticed that God keeps stepping in and trying to turn us back from our sin? He keeps using different methods to show us how baked into our DNA our sin nature truly is. His purpose is to show us that at the end of the day, We can't do it alone, and that we desperately need His help, and He is willing to help. Today, I want to look at another great event where God stepped in. If you've listened to any of the last messages, you may remember that I have said before that to believe in Jesus as Savior is to take Him at His word, to believe true what He believes is true. You can't follow Him as Savior if you can't trust Him at His word. The events we're going to talk about today, he actually believed happened, and so should we. We call Jesus the great teacher, and he was, and still is, the best teacher of all time. He recognized that we needed to learn from the lessons of the past. In Luke 17, the Pharisees come up to him, questioning him and God's plan about his future kingdom. Jesus gives a very simple and short answer in Luke 17:32. Remember Lot's wife. What did he mean? Why is remembering her past so important to our future? I want to find out together. So to know more about Lot's wife, we need to know more about her story. 
and her story is found in Genesis chapter 19. Our focus will mostly be in Genesis 19, but the events leading up to her story start the chapter before, so it's in chapter 18 that we find that God has again stepped into our lives to intervene and turn people back to himself. We find what he has planned, and he has plans to destroy the city, and even gives an interesting reason in verses eight, in chapter 18, verses 20 through 21. In chapter 18, it reads this, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that their sin is so grievous, I'm going to go down and see what they have done, and see if it is bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. What is interesting is that we are never told where the outcry is coming from. It becomes very interesting as we learn that in the coming verses there are less than ten righteous people in the city. The reason we know this is that Abraham pleads with God not to destroy the city, and he even starts to barter with God about saving the city, and if he can find so many righteous people. He approaches God in this manner in verses 23 through 24. It says, Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of those fifty righteous people in it? Over the next couple of verses, the number slowly gets whittled down, all the way down to ten. In verse 32, we see the final barter attempt. It says, Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found? And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. There have been some that have said that they feel Abraham didn't go lower because he knew that God had once destroyed the world for less than ten by means of the flood, as mentioned earlier. Maybe Abraham felt that he had pushed his luck as far as he could get, given that he was currently bartering with God of the universe. We don't know the actual reason the conversation ends here, but it is interesting to think about. So God sets forth to send two angels down to investigate the depths of the depravity that the city has fallen into and to judge it if they find out that the accusations are true. We enter chapter 19 and find Lot sitting at the city's gate. Chapter 19 verse 1 reads, The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and he bowed down with his face on the ground. So Lot was sitting at the gate. It shows that he has a place of honor in the society. We know that he is an outsider and that he is only there because he and Abraham had two herds that were too large to dwell together. They ended up separating back in Genesis 13. To sit at a city's gate was often the job of a city official. King David sat at his city's gate from time to time. The judges, from the book of Judges, sat at their city's gates as well. In fact, later on in the chapter, as the men of the city become angry at Lot, they accuse him of being an outsider that judges them. At verse 9, it actually reads, This fellow came here as a foreigner. Now he wants to play the judge. But we'll talk more about that here in a minute. Notice here in verse 1 that Lot has recognized these men as being something different than normal travelers. He got up from his position and he bows to them as one would worship royalty or even deity. I would say that Lot, though living in a city full of wickedness, still knew how to recognize godliness. It is here we find that Lot still has manners. He knows that the city he lives in is cruel. Let's read verses 2 and 3 together. My lords, he said, Please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. 
but he insisted so strongly that they go with him that they entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Personally, I think this is the actions that eventually saves Lot and ultimately show his personal commitment to godliness. He went above and beyond and out of his way to protect God's messengers, and soon the whole town finds out that there are new people there. We aren't given any biblical insight how they find out, but the men of the city come out with one purpose in mind. So let's read verses 4 through 8. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them, and he shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do whatever with them that you want. But don't do anything to these men, for they come under the protection of my roof. The Bible makes it very clear that these men had one thing on their minds. What may be the most gut-wrenching part of this account is something that is often overshadowed by the excuse that they offer. Verse 4 points out that both the young and the old surrounded the house. In our nation today, we have gangs of men who do terrible things. We've heard of gang wars and the like. But these are typically and overwhelmingly groups of young men led by young men. Here we find that the wickedness has been perpetuated through all the generations. There are no wise or godly examples leading the next generation from their sin. They're just leading them into it. And what must have felt like a nightmare scenario, Lot does an unimaginable thing and he offers up his virgin daughters to the mob in a last-ditch effort to keep them from attacking his divine houseguests. The mob refuses the women. Let that sink in. The men, young and old, refuse to be satisfied by the women, but rather they continued with their depraved desires of their hearts. Lot couldn't have imagined a scenario playing out like this when back in Genesis 13.10, as we mentioned earlier, he likened it to the garden of the Lord in the Garden of Eden. It reads like this in Genesis 13.10. Lot looked around and he saw the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zor, and it was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. He compared the land of Sodom to both the garden of Eden and the land of Egypt, the place where his fellow Israelites would eventually spend generations enslaved. A very harrowing prediction of a beautiful enslavement, being enslaved by the beauty of the eyes. The angels reach for Lot and pull him into the house just in time to keep him from the mob's grasp. Having seen enough to justify the judgment that they have been sent to administer, they say to Lot in Genesis chapter 19 verses 12 through 13. Let's pick it up there. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else, sons-in-laws, daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Get your family together and get out now. What is interesting here is that the timeline is taking place. You see, verse 4 says before they had gone to bed, the mob arrived. You're probably looking at midnight at the latest, but it takes lots some time to try to find and convince his future sons-in-laws to get out. By verse 15, it says that dawn is just about to break, which means this took place throughout the whole night. Lot had several hours to get everything together and to get out, but there still doesn't seem to be enough time as the angels get tired of waiting and eventually they end up dragging Lot and his family out. Check out verse 16 with me. 
When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and his two daughters, and they led them out safely in the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. It is here we know for sure that God had given all four of them, Lot, his wife, and their two daughters, an out. His angels physically pulled them out to safety. You know, there's a big difference between physically somewhere and emotionally in that same place. For Lot's wife, it seems that her body was being pushed to physical safety, but her heart was left behind. Have you ever been there? You've been to a place, but your heart stayed? I spent five years in West Virginia being trained as a rock climber, a whitewater raft guide, and a caver, among other things, when I was going for my camping degree at Bible College. There was this spot that we used to visit to go rock climbing. It's about a two-mile hike in. The trail winds up and down this hillside around the side of a lake. The path there leads you across bridges and down a couple of 30 and 40 foot tall ladders that are leaned against the cliff sides. Somewhere in the midst of the hike, the rhododendron that fills the West Virginia landscape becomes almost tropical to the point where you stand at the bottom of this waterfall and if you don't know any better, it's like you're in the middle of a jungle in the middle of Central America. And when I close my eyes, sometimes I can go back there in my mind's eye and I just soak it in. You probably have a place just like mine that is special to all of you. These places can be beautiful, but when they become consuming desires of our hearts, they can become dangerous. In the New Testament, the Apostle John writes on this very subject. In 1 John, not to be confused with the gospel that he also wrote, but near the end of the New Testament, just after the books of James and First and Second Peter, we find John's other writings. And he has a caution in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but of the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of the God lives forever. The world will offer us some pretty great pleasures, but they are fleeting, and they can distract us from the worship of our God. Lot's wife, though warned not to look back, but rather to go forward, still yearned for the community that she had, the pleasures the city had given her. Instead of trusting and leaning into God, she looked back. We're not told directly that she turned into a pillar of salt because of her heart, but it's implied by Jesus' words in Luke 17. In verse 32 and 33 in Luke 17, he says this, Remember Lot's wife, as we started out the sermon with He says, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. I believe Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees in this passage to be careful of what they cling to in this life because it can become the obstacle that stands in their way of reaching God as ours as well. What we just read of in John seems to be saying the exact same thing. Lot made a decision long before what was probably the longest night in his life. He lifted up his eyes and he followed after what looked good back in chapter 13. He followed his heart rather than following God. What's interesting is just about reading Lot here and what we have described for us. Genesis doesn't lead one to believe that Lot is a follower of God through these passages, at least not for a righteous man. But God, through Peter, gives us more insight than we could ever ask for about Lot's life. As we were just in 1 John, the book before it is 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7-8, through 8, Peter pens these words 
which only God could give us. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7-8 through And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for a righteous man living among them from day to day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Did you hear that? Lot was a righteous man, and it tormented his righteous soul to be around such lawlessness every single day. There's a couple of questions that we have to ask ourselves. If Lot was a righteous man... Was it a good decision for him to live around such lawlessness? What was the cost? Was Lot effective at reaching others with God's message? As the leader of my family, I have to ask these same questions. We are called to be a light in a dark world, but to what extent? Lot was in the darkest of communities, and it seems he lost his family to the culture around him. What is God calling you to do in your life? One thing I do know is that Lot did not have a community of believers around him, else they would have been pulled out with him. We are called to reach a dark and dying world, but there are cautions here that we need to listen to as we move forward. Number one, surround yourself with other growing Christians. They will be invaluable to you as you live your life for Christ in a world that is constantly turning away from him. Number two, Only you can determine what circumstances God is calling you to live under. Don't be fooled by your eyes and consider His plans in prayer. And number three, be careful about getting attached to this world. It has a lot of shiny things that will make you temporarily happy, but ultimately, they can become a distraction to your relationship with Christ. Be careful. In unsettling times, when it feels like everything is out of our control, it is incredibly easy to worry. When everything seems to just be getting worse each day and you are finding it harder and harder just to have the strength to continue on, I want to leave you with the wise words of Martin Luther as he started to realize the scope of what needed to change in his day and age. Pray and let God worry. Give it to Him. He can handle it. Father, I thank you for this uh, time with uh, other believers. Lord, I ask that you use this message to strengthen, to encourage, to remind those who hear it of your power, that you are ultimately in control and that you want the best for us. Help us to tread forward cautiously in prayer. Help us to trust you and to know your will for our lives. I thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you have a blessed day. I look forward to when we can meet again in person.